Um, with all of that said, I, I want to share some good news for you this morning. Um, you'll be happy to know that we won't be talking about money today. <laughs> I know some of you are very relieved to hear that. I know we've, we've been in a series on our finances, and it's an awesome time. I love when Pastor Josh teaches on finances, uh, but today you get a break from it, so you can take your hands off your wallets. We're, we're all good. Uh, this morning, uh, we're, we're talking uh, about uh, two characters from the Old Testament, Abram and Lot. And I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Wrong Direction on a Shaky Foundation. So if you would turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 13, we, we pick up in the story of Abram. Um, as he's returning from the land of Egypt. If you remember, uh, Abram is called out of the land he grew up in, the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, where his family uh, came from. And he's called out by God to go to the promised land. And he, he goes up to a place called Haran, and he waits there for a long time, and he picks up his nephew Lot. And eventually they come down into the promised land. They enter the land God is going to give to his people. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, as soon as Abram enters the land of promise, a famine hits. And the first thing Abram does, as soon as the famine hits, is run away from the promise. He runs down into Egypt because it's better there. He can, he can provide for himself. He can escape the famine. Um, and all sorts of things go wrong for Abram in Egypt. He schemes and connives and lies about his wife, who's his sister, but it's not his wife. Uh, it's a whole big mess, uh, and God has to set him right again. And Abram turns his life around, and, and we're picking up in his story at a place where he's turned back and gone in the right direction, back towards the promise. The, the writer of Genesis actually does something interesting with the language here. If you, if you pay attention to it, um, every time that uh, he wants to indicate a spiritual decline, he will use the word down. So in chapter 12, it says, uh, Abram goes down into Egypt. He's, he's indicating this descent into darkness. But here in verse 1, uh, Abram went up from Egypt. He is going up back into the light, back into the land of promise. He's repented and changed his ways. He went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. And Lot went with him. So up is good, down is bad. We see that kind of language all throughout this story. Um, when he's not indicating any sort of spiritual change, it's just towards or to. But notice the ups and the downs in the story of Abram. Abram's turned his life around. He's going back towards God. He's going up into the land after failing a test of his faith miserably in Genesis chapter 12. It says in verse 3, from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, the place 
between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. So Abram finds himself back at a place he had been before, Bethel. Bethel is a a really important place in the Bible. Uh, And like most important place names that we find in the Bible, uh, Bethel shows up a lot in our modern world as the name of churches. How many of you have ever heard of a church named Bethel? It's all over the place. So what is it about that particular word that would make us Christians want to name our churches after it? Well, Bethel is actually a compound Hebrew word. It's made up of two words. That's how compound words work. Uh, Beth and El. Beth meaning house or house of, and El meaning God. Now that you know this, you'll start to see it all across the place names in the Bible. Uh, Beth, house, right? House of bread, Bethlehem. House of mercy, Beth Ezda. House, house of hunting, Beth Seda. El, you, you know this when we talk about the names of God. So El Elyon means God most high. El Shaddai, God almighty. El Roi, the God who sees. So Beth El is the house of God. It's a pretty cool name, in my opinion. I, I think. That's something most churches would want to associate themselves with, right? Being called the house of God, the place where people can go to find the presence of God, the place where God dwells and lives in. Abram wouldn't have known Bethel, Bethel, by that particular name. It was given to it later um, by his descendant Jacob in Genesis 28. But the original readers of Genesis definitely would have caught on to what Moses was writing here. Um, And Abram would have known this is the place where he had met with God. It, It was a really important site. So including it here is the writer's way of saying all of those really important meetings you had with God all happened here at the same place. There is something special and holy about this house of God. But there's another place mentioned, right? He's between Bethel and somewhere else. That place is Ai. It's an easy one to remember, I think, because it's the only word I can think of that's made up of two vowels, A-I. If you ever forget how to pronounce it, A-I. This name has a meaning as well, and it's significant, I think. Ai means heap or ruin. So just based on your own definition, do you think Ai is a good place or a bad place? You guys are so smart. Smarter than first service, that's for sure. (laughs) So there they are, Abram and Sarai and Lot chilling out between the house of God and the place of ruin. You know, that's actually where I think a lot of Christians find themselves in their lives. Somewhere between God's presence and total destruction. 
We live in the middle of that seesaw, one foot on one side and one foot on the other. It wouldn't take much to topple us off. But we'll get to that later. You know, oftentimes when we read passages of Scripture like this, we bring our own uh, presuppositions, our own uh, thoughts into the text. Uh, so when we, we read about Abram and Sarai and Lot being in a place, we think that those are the only people involved in the story. But let me tell you, uh, this is less like a family road trip and more like a traveling circus. Uh, we think of Abram out in the wilderness in his little tent camping, uh, but really this was a massive enterprise that he had going on here. He had a whole tribe of people that he was toting along with him all over the face of the earth. Chapter 14 uh, tells us that Abram had within his household around 300 men trained in the art of war. This is this in verse 14. Abram, when he heard his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went out in pursuit as far as Dan. So what does that tell us? Well, if there are 318 in his household that were born in his household that are trained in the art of war, surely those men probably have families. So, you, you know, at least one for every one of those, that's 600 something. Um, and that's not even counting the men born in his household that weren't trained in the art of war. Surely there were other servants that weren't his soldiers. So there's quite a lot of folks here. Uh, it's not a dinky little tent with three guys in the desert. Remember, Abram and Lot are semi-nomadic herdsmen. Uh, does anyone know what it means to be semi-nomadic? It means you're partially nomadic. Uh, <laughs> you're kind of settled for a while and you, you kind of travel. Um, a herdsman is one that has a herd of something. Uh, for Abram and Lot, it was cows and sheep and donkeys and camels. Um, anyone ever uh, taken care of livestock before? Yeah. yeah. I figured the chances were better in this church than a lot of other churches. Uh, what do cows and sheep need to survive? Grazing. They need grass and they need water. Good, good job. All right, you all get your 4-H badge this morning. Uh, I looked it up the other day uh, because uh, I am not a farmer. I know, shocking. Um, but according to conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom being Google, a cow uh, needs about an acre of pasture to live on. And an acre of pasture can support anywhere from six to ten sheep. So if you have one cow and six sheep, how many acres of land do you need? Two. You need two acres. Um, so for those of you that are not familiar with sizes of land, an acre is 208 feet by 208 feet. I have a picture here compared to a football field. That's what an acre of land is. So you need two of those for just one cow and six sheep. Abram and Lot had a lot more than that. Uh, when they were down in Egypt, it says that uh, Pharaoh treated Abram well. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and male and female servants and camels. Uh, suffice to say, 
a lot of animals need a lot of land to graze. And this might cause a source of contention if there wasn't enough land to graze all the animals on. And what do you know? If you read down in verse 5, there it is. There's the trouble. It says, now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So there's, there's trouble between all of Abram's stuff and all of Lot's stuff. There wasn't enough room for the both of them to live at peace with each other. As an aside, I just want to mention this. You know, wealth isn't the answer to all of our problems like we think it is. I know I said we weren't talking about money, but there's a really, really salient point here. A lot of times we think, man, if I just had more money or if I just had more stuff, it would fix this or it would fix that. Um, For Abram and Lot, their wealth actually created more problems than they had before. See, remember, they were at this same exact spot before they went to Egypt. Chapter 12 tells us they camped between Ai and Bethel, but there's no mention of quarreling or fighting or there not being enough land. It's only when they return from Egypt with all of the stuff from the world that all of a sudden they have problems This dispute really, it it highlights for us the contrast between Abram and Lot's relationship with God. See, Lot wanted God plus everything else. But Abram, he wanted God over everything else. It was a matter of priorities, really. And then, of course, there's also the Canaanites and the Perizzites who don't care about God at all. One theologian said these are really the three categories of people in the world. There are the natural, the unsaved people, the people that don't care about God at all. Then there are the carnal, the people that live for their flesh. They care about God, but they want God plus the world and their flesh, and they live for God plus everything. And then This theologian says there are the truly spiritual, the ones that are devoted to God above everything else. All right, one more thing about wealth, and I promise we're not going to talk about it anymore. Um, Wealth to the God over everything person is a blessing because you can use its power and wield it for good in the world. But wealth to the God plus everything person is a recipe for disaster. It quickly becomes the God that you serve. You can't serve two masters. That's why we have to be God over everything people. All right. Back to our text. It says in verse 7 that quarreling arose between Abram's herders and lots. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land at the time. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, they represent that first group of people, the the natural 
people, the people that are unsaved. They have no desire or relationship with God at all. They're outside of a relationship with God, but they are watching to see what's going to happen. Christian, can I tell you, anytime you live in the world, there are going to be Canaanites and Perizzites watching to see how you act. They're watching when you get in quarrels with your fellow Christians because they want to know what all of this is about. So be careful when you're engaging with your brothers and sisters in Christ in public because what you say reflects on the God you serve. It's why it's so important to make peace a priority here. Abram makes that choice. He made peace a priority because he valued kingdom over his own priorities. It says in verse 8, Abram said to Lot, we're not going to have any of this quarreling between you and me. We're close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. In this act of peacemaking, he, he demonstrates the way Christians ought to act. So we ought to be God over everything people. Yeah. Abram had every right to tell Lot what to do. Right? He could have settled this quarrel uh, by taking charge and telling Lot to go leave and take whatever land was left over. Uh, Abram was leader of the clan, after all. He was the elder statesman, the head of the tribe. He had every right to tell Lot, I'm going to take this land, and you can have that over there. In fact, the text suggests that Abram really uh, functioned in a lot of ways like a father to Lot. He could have said, listen here, squirt. You know, I'm going to go this way and take the best for myself, and you can take whatever is left over. Really, that's the attitude that Abram took when he went down to Egypt. He schemed and connived and made a plan that looked out for number one, for himself. And he told his wife, Sarai, just, all right, here's what we're going to do. You're going to pretend to be my sister, even though you actually are technically my sister. Uh, Old Testament. Um, but you're not my wife. Because if you were my wife, those Egyptians would murder me, and I don't want that. So go ahead, get taken away by those Egyptians, just as long as I'm safe and I get to build my wealth. That's what he did. God wasn't a fan of that plan, because God had a bigger plan in mind for Abram and his descendants. Um, and he intervened. He laid down a curse on the Egyptians, and the Egyptians got mad when they realized that uh, they were being cursed because they stole somebody's wife. Um, and Abram realizes the folly of his ways, and he repents, right? We talked about that at the beginning. But he, he did that in chapter 12. He schemed and connived and made his own way, and he realized how terribly that turned out for everyone involved, it caused a whole bunch of trouble for everyone, and Abram repented. It looks like Abram is learning. He's still got a long way to go, but he's got his priorities right. He trusted God over 
everything else, at least in this instance. He's going to screw up a couple more times in life. He knew that no matter where he ended up, God was going to provide for him and his household and all of his livestock. And he knew, more real now than ever, the consequences of not trusting God could be a lot worse than trusting in him from the beginning. So he defers to his nephew and he lets Lot make the choice. But the problem with Lot is Lot still has Egypt in his heart. Egypt is the symbol of the world, of self-reliance, of doing things my own way, not placing your trust and faith in God. Lot thought to himself, if I can get my own land and my herds can eat and drink on the green, green pastures of Zoar, I could provide for myself pretty good. I could set up a good life here. I could... I could do well for myself. It says this in verse 10, that Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar. It was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan. Well, Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Lot wanted the best of both worlds. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too. But you can't be wholly devoted to God and still try to live like the world does. Lot wanted Eden and Egypt. But you can't live for God while you're living like the unrighteous. How many times do we make a decision based on our own logic or intellect or what we see is good and then go to God and ask him to bless it? It says that that Lot looked around and saw and then he compared it to Eden. He said, oh, man, this is a great place. You know, God, I think you would like this place. And he wanted God to bless. He he put this facade of spirituality on it. But it was really more like Egypt than it was like Eden. 2 Corinthians 6 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Don't get yourselves into entanglements with the wicked people of the world. If you read on in Lot's story, this is the beginning of his downfall. This one decision cast in stone the fate of his family. This one misguided decision begins the downward spiral of Lot's life. Because he chose to go out ahead of what God's plan for his life was. It's only going to cause him more trouble and heartache as time goes on. So Lot, he makes a decision because Egypt is in his heart. And Abram, deferring to his nephew, choosing to make peace a priority, is blessed because he chose God over everything, 
Abram is blessed for his faith. Verse 14 says, The Lord said to Abram after Lot parted from him, Look around from where you are. Notice that God told Abram to look, and Lot looked for himself. Come on now. Uh, To the north and the south, to the east and the west, all the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. See, Abram ends up getting the much better end of the deal. Lot made a choice out of his own intellect and understanding to provide for his family in his own scheme. And that choice will later go on to cause him to lose his family. Abram chooses second place. He chooses to value God over everything, to place his trust in God for his provision. And God blesses him with land and a family for generation upon generation. See, there are two paths to choose in life for the Christian. One path leads to Bethel, And one path leads to AI. There are two directions you can take in life. One leads to the house of God and one leads to your destruction. I love how chapter 12 describes the the campsite that they're at. It says, from there they went on to the hills east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and AI on the east. So when Lot stood on the hill that day, he looked off to the east, to the plains of Zoar, and surely he saw Ai. He saw destruction. But he chose the greener pastures, and he turned his back on the house of the Lord. It would end up being his downfall. In chapter 14, it goes on to describe just soon after Lot and his family move off into Jordan, uh, they get caught up in this world war. They become captives and prisoners, um, and Abram has to save them. And that's just the beginning of their troubles. The next time we hear mention of Lot is in chapter 19, when God finally has enough of hearing about the wickedness of Sodom. Abram is, is pleading for the people of Sodom. He says, God, if there's, there's only 10 righteous, will you save it? And God says, if there's 10, I'll go check it out myself. And what does the angel of the Lord find when he enters the city of Sodom? Not Lot camped out in the field near Sodom. No, Lot is sitting in the gate of the city in a prominent position of influence amongst the wicked. He allowed his potential for social and material gain to compromise his morals. Further, when God allowed his family to escape the destruction planned for Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's own wife turns back and looks at the city for her own peril because her heart was attached to Sodom. The Bible says she became a pillar of salt. And then as a 
a final disgusting twist in the life of Lot. His own daughters get him drunk in a cave and lay with him to produce their own offspring. How far the family of Lot fell. To go from being an integral part of God's plan and vision for the people of God to falling apart totally. It's all because they headed in the wrong direction. But more than that, they headed in the wrong direction on a shaky foundation. So how can we know which direction we're headed? I have a couple of mile markers for you uh, along the road to destruction. These are things we learn from the life of Lot. The first one is, is this. Your faith is not grounded in your own experience, but it's based on others. Time and again, Scripture records that Abram talked with God, and Abram built an altar, and Abram heard the direction from the Lord. Never once does Lot seek the Lord for himself. It says Lot went with him. See, Lot is satisfied to follow Abram's direction from God instead of his own. So my question for you this morning is, have you sought the Lord for your own direction? Have you made your faith personal? Or are you relying on someone else's experiences with God to get you through? Are you putting your faith in someone else's miracle from God? Are you waiting on God for your own? Your faith's not grounded in your own experience. The second mile marker is you make decisions based on what looks or seems right instead of taking your decisions to God. Lot saw the well-watered ground and his brain thought, ah, it's an opportunity. But surely he also saw the city of Sodom. He saw destruction, and he knew it was trouble, but he didn't stop to ask the Lord for direction. He didn't ask the Lord which way he wanted him to go. Lot never built an altar for himself or his family. He trusted in his own understanding. He trusted what he saw. He relied on what felt right in here and what made sense up here. He made a logical decision instead of a spiritual decision. He settled for a good idea instead of waiting for God's idea. How many times do we get ahead of God's leading in our life? We make decisions based on our own feelings or our own understanding instead of wrapping each and every life choice in prayer and seeking God's guidance. God wants to give you his guidance. He's given you a book full of wisdom to base your life choices on. But too often we step out in front of where God is leading us because we're leaning on our own understanding. 
The third mile marker on the road to destruction is you don't take the warning signs seriously. See, Lot knew what kind of wickedness the people that lived in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah were living in. But either he, he didn't believe it was that wicked, or he foolishly thought he could avoid it while living in close proximity to it. You know what the Bible says to do when we encounter temptation? Flee from it. Start running in the opposite direction. There's no temptation known to man which God has not provided an escape for. God never says in the entire counsel of his word to knuckle down and stand firm next to the thing that your heart lusts after. Knuckle down and just, just don't do anything. Just stand right there. You'll be fine. No, that's stupid. <laughs> Run away. Yes. You have to take the warning sign seriously. Yeah. You can't fool yourself into thinking that you are strong enough to withstand on your own, especially if you're not built on a firm foundation. I... I heard an interesting story that I think illustrates this very well. On uh, March the 12th, the year 1928, about three minutes before midnight, the St. Francis Dam in Los Angeles County, California, suddenly and catastrophically failed. It released a torrent of water in a flood wave that reached heights of up to 140 feet and swept a path of destruction two miles wide. All in all, the reservoir it was holding back released 12.4 billion gallons of water and took the lives of an estimated 450 people in the matter of minutes. To this day, it is the second largest disaster loss of human life in the state of California's history. It's topped only by the great earthquake of 1906. But the thing that sets it apart is that this disaster was completely man-made, and it was completely preventable. The, the dam was constructed under the direction and supervision of one man. His name was William Mulholland. Mulholland was the director of the Los Angeles Bureau of Water and Supply. Uh, but more importantly, uh, even though he constructed this dam, he was not a qualified engineer. He was completely self-taught. He taught himself geology and engineering by reading textbooks. Um, and this wasn't even the first dam that he had built. He had already built one and named it after himself. Um, he directed the design and construction of this dam. In fact, he recycled the design and the shape and the stress calculations that he had used in the previous dam for St. Francis. You know, if there's anything that ought to be custom designed and built for each project, you would think it would be a dam that holds back billions of gallons of water. Uh, but they thought, We've already built this one. Let's just reuse all of the work we've done. 
But surprisingly, that wasn't the main factor in its failure. No, rather, it seems that the major failure was caused by a phenomenon that engineers call hydrostatic uplift. And to prevent you from having to go get an engineering degree to understand what's going on, um, basically, it means that water got underneath the walls of the dam and eroded away its foundation. It began to fall apart from the second it started to hold water. In fact, in the days and months before the disaster, Mulholland was personally called out several times to inspect a series of cracks and leaks. They should have served as sufficient warning that something was seriously wrong. The week before the collapse, the dam keeper reported that one leak was flowing at a rate of eight gallons of water per second. The day of the collapse, a different leak was observed personally by Mulholland that surged water from anywhere between 15 to 22 gallons per second of water. But no action was taken to correct it. Mulholland stated that repairs could be held off for a later date. In fact, um, Mulholland went on record to say that this dam was the driest dam he had ever seen. Granted, he had only built two of them, so I don't really know how qualified he was to state that. According to the findings of the state inquest after the disaster, they said, having examined all the evidence, it's been able to determine the conclusions as follows. The type and dimensions of the dam were amply sufficient if based on a suitable foundation. So there was nothing wrong necessarily with the type or size of the dam. The concrete of which the dam was built was of ample strength to resist the stretches to which it would normally be subjected. The failure cannot be laid to the movement of the Earth's crust. It wasn't a landslide or an earthquake. No, the dam failed as a result of a defective foundation. And the failure reflects in no way the stability of a well-designed gravity dam properly founded on suitable bedrock. A separate investigation laid the blame solely on an error in engineering judgment in determining the foundation at the St. Francis Dam site. And that the responsibility for error rests upon the Bureau of Waterworks and Supply and the chief engineer thereof. They recommended further that the construction and operation of a great dam should never be left to the sole judgment of one man, no matter how eminent. This great disaster happened because one man failed to build upon the proper foundation. And when he saw the warning signs, his ego and hubris prevented him from taking any action to stop it. Like Mulholland Lot brought untold destruction on his family through one fatally misguided decision. When your foundation isn't strong, anything you build on top of it is going to collapse eventually. I think Jesus actually tells it best in a parable in Matthew chapter 7. He says, therefore, 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So I ask you this morning, how's your foundation? How's your foundation? You know, when uh, Rachel and I were buying our house, I, I knew for a long time that I, I wanted to live in a historic home. I, I've always loved old houses. I've always wanted a house that said something about my personality, something I could point to and just be interesting, uh, something to talk about. I, I knew from the moment I stepped into our house on the first viewing that I wanted to buy it. But when I went down into the crawl space in the basement, I saw something that really concerned me. Uh, the walls were a little bit... Eh. Um, and I, although I knew I wanted to buy the house from the second I saw it, I was afraid the house was going to fail the inspection and we'd never be able to get a mortgage um, and we wouldn't be able to afford it. Um, so we called out a structural engineer and he inspected the foundation. He was able to tell us that the previous owners at some point had seen the same thing I had seen. They saw warning signs in the foundation. But they had already done the work necessary to shore up the foundation. I was scared because I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know what I was looking at. But when the structural engineer came and told us, everything had already been taken care of. I was afraid because I didn't know what the warning signs were. And I didn't know what I was looking at. I think a lot of times we look at our spiritual foundation and we don't know what to look for. We don't know what the warning signs are. I think John writes in Revelation a good test for us. He writes this to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. He says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. You can't tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and you've endured hardships for, an, for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you don't, it will come and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, there's a lot of good things going for you but there's some cracks in your foundation. This is what to look for. Right? You've forgotten the love that you had when you first knew Christ. You've allowed your sense of spiritual duty, of obligation, your own understanding to replace the genuine love and desire for my presence. The prophet Jeremiah had a Similar message to the people of Israel. 
Jeremiah 2 says that, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, you followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown, but my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. How quickly do we turn from our source of living water to try and go our own way? It'll only ever lead to failure and destruction and disappointment. We dig our own cisterns in an attempt to hold on to the water that represents his presence. You know what the difference between a spring and a cistern is? A spring always has fresh water. Water that sits in a cistern will either leak out or go stale. Moving water sustains life. Stagnant water harbors disease. You can't hold on to a past move of God. Yesterday's manna is not going to feed you today. Last year's altar can't atone for this year's sin. Abram's vision can't lead Lot's family. When we're outside the house of God, not abiding in his presence, we, we settle into a pattern of operating out of our own understanding. What we think is right or what we've always done it causes us to live dull and dry lives of spiritual duty. There's no life there. As disciples of Christ, too often we go out ahead is leading. We leave him behind. We walk out ahead out of our own sense of duty or obligation or propriety. We substitute our own understanding of what's right or prudent or proper for the enlightenment that comes from the Spirit of God. The enlightenment that's found presence of God in the house of the Lord. And after a while, when we settle for duty or obligation, it's going to leave us feeling emptier and dry. And we say in our actions, thanks, Jesus, but I've got it from here. I can handle this. I know just what to do. We settle for good ideas instead of God's ideas. It's not the abundant life that Christ promised. The peace that passes all understanding is absent because we've left Jesus behind. When we substitute our relationship with God, founded on our own understanding, instead of a relationship that abides in his presence, we have no shelter from the storms and troubles of this life. We're building our lives on a shaky foundation. The Christian life cannot last in any true and meaningful sense based only on a sense of what we should do on our sense of spiritual duty because that's all that's left when our desire's gone stale that sense of should do 
You know, I should go to church. I should read my Bible. I should pray. I should join a small group. I should write my sermon. That's surface level Christianity. And we all know what happens to should do when something I want to do comes along. On the surface, there's no protection from the winds and the waves of trouble that come along with life. That's why we have to ensure our spiritual desire never grows stale. We can't dig our own cisterns. We can't ever operate out of our own understanding. We can't serve God very well just because we have to. That, that sense of obligation and duty, it's not wrong, it's just not sufficient. It produces bad fruit in our life. So the only antidote to this way of living, it's the same thing Abram learned in Egypt, it's the same thing that's been true ever since. We have to repent. We have to turn around, head back to Bethel. Get back into the presence of the Lord and receive new vision, new revelation, new miracle from God. We have to get back to the presence of Jesus. We have to experience a rekindling of that desire for the lover of our soul. You know, some might call that revival. I'm inclined to call it spiritual desire. But all in all, it's the life of Christ that abides in his presence. Not subsisting on head knowledge or obligation, but a true love and desire to know and be known by Christ. To turn to the house of God, live in his presence and build our lives upon his foundation. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray that you would ignite in us, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, a true desire to know and be known by you. God, let us turn to you Spend time in your presence. Serve you not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of desire. And we face the right direction and build our lives upon the only firm foundation. We trust that you are doing it even now. You'll meet us here. prayer partners will be up front if you would like to pray for the rest of you go be blessed we'll see you back here next week